Excellent. And we are live on Game Changers with me, Vicki Abelson. And my guest today is my friend, David Wild. Hi, David. Hello. I'm so, you know, I haven't seen you in, um, in pandemic years. I haven't seen you since. It's been pandemic years, yes. Right? And I haven't seen you since the last time I was at Phil's, which was a long time ago. And, um, and I want to, I, I, I'm really frustrated, David, because I want to ask you all new things and get new stories, but I have to, I'm going to have to ask some of your greatest hits because your greatest hits are I'll great. do Freebird, but I'm not going <laughs> to smoke on the water. Oh, come on. Uh, I'll do Rock and Roll Never Forgets, but I will not do Sir Duke. Oh, there you go. So before we even get into any of the music or anything, uh, what have uh, what have you, Fran, right? Your wife's name is Fran? I, when she left today, she, yeah. it was. I haven't checked with her lately. <laughs> okay, so what? how have you guys been handling this pandemic? I know the Grammys, which you, you have been the head writer for for 22 years. It, it, 21. I'm 21. A, I'm a youthful. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's been postponed, which you would have been doing like now. What, well, what it actually you? would have been over like two days ago, I guess. Uh, uh, I It's very, I was not happy. I was really excited to have it done in January. We were excited. Right. But it worked out okay because I was working on uh, helping Ringo Starr with a book and it, it, it took until like three days ago to get it to the printer. So in the end, uh, it, it's gonna work out okay. Everything happens for a reason. And you are such a show off. Only you could say you were working with Ringo on a book. And you know- <laughs> Well, if I was gonna show off, I would have said John Lennon. That would have been impressive at this point. Well, that would have been really hard to do uh, yes. now. And and the thing that kills me about you is I remember asking you about if, if the Beatles are what got you into music and your answer was, no, I was like two. And so- well, no, I, The funny thing is, is a lot of people go up to me, including uh, like uh, my rabbi at Temple <laughs> Israel, uh, a neighbor two days ago, and they see, because CNN repeats those 60s, 70s 80s shows and right one of the more popular is the Beatles on the British invasion and as a result of that I, I'm all over that one as Tom Hanks said it's like uh, there's way too much of you in that episode but as a result people think I remember the Beatles on Ed Sullivan which I don't now I have the opposite experience of I do I have a vague memory of an old a, bro, a friend's older brother having the posters from the white album on in the basement all hanging up but my <laughs> my memories are of the beatles hitting solo so i was like band on the oh run oh my god so, so and in fact i remember years ago being in the back of in argentina uh in buenos aires with paul mccartney and his band and linda and he said what do you think of the the set list and i'm like I would like a little less Beatles and a little more uh, Band on the Run. And he was like, you're the <laughs> only one who tells me that. And I'm like, yeah, but that's just, it is. I know, listen, Beatles are better than Wings, but I want my Wings too. Well, you get to have your Wings because you're young. You get to, you know. I, I, <laughs> yeah, well, let's, you are compared to me. Everything is relative, <laughs> David. Um, 
All right. So t- before we get into everything, t- tell me like how you guys have fared during the pandemic. How is your life? You're a writer. So has life gone on? Are you writing with Ringo? What 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 has life been like? <coughs> um, it was pretty wild because um, wild. the week, well, yeah, uh, <laughs> like me, uh, the week before everyone knew about the pandemic, I did a benefit for breast cancer with Tom Hanks, Rita Wilson, Spielberg and Kate Capshaw in Beverly Hills. All right, I'm it, just going to warn everybody. The name David dropper? is not a name dropper. This oh, I is am. His, well, I but am. Th- but this is this is his life and it is the most thrilling and obnoxious thing at the same time because he knows every single person and has and we will only forgive him because he has the best stories. Okay, so go ahead. I'm sorry. So, I was working on this uh breast cancer benefit called an unforgettable evening yeah. and that was like right from there uh tom hanks and rita wilson went off to australia which oh. is when the world hit that news i was going then to las vegas to do a alzheimer's uh, actually it's a brain disease thing with the lou ruvo center it's called keep memory alive in vegas this giant event neil diamond my childhood hero who i wrote a book about how much i I, love, I was raised on Neil Diamond in the 70s by my mom. That's my, you know, that's, <laughs> that's your Beatles. Memory. Yes, that's my, well, <laughs> I better not have Ringo hear that. Um, but in any case, uh, no, but I'm, you know, I don't, I know I'm passing on your show, but I'm Jewish and Neil was my Elvis. But in any case, so I'm literally in. We're going to talk about Whoopi, by the way. Okay, I don't want to forget. Okay, go ahead. So as it happened, the night, I think before I left for Vegas. Yeah. That's when Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson announced they had this thing. Right. And my wife, I remember, like was like freaking out that I was going no, to- wait a minute. Were you with them when they were incubating? Yes. No. Oh, I was no, I was with them the night before and no one knew when they got it. So my oh. wife was worried that I had it. Now, weirdly, I went on a flight to Southwest. At that point, it was a point in the pandemic where you weren't worried about there were no masks being talked about. Right. But you were wiping surfaces like mad. <laughs> Right. So I got to the MGM where, in fact, the same space where the Grammys are going to be in a few months, in a few weeks, really. And um, I remember I wiped down, I, I literally <laughs> went through two precious wipe containers, wiping oh, down because, the room. Because those became like gold. You couldn't get those. No, no. And my <laughs> wife, she's the first to worry, which will come in. Like we got, we, we volunteered early for the vaccine and at magic mountain and so I, it was i have to say i married one of the great <laughs> most adorable successful brilliant but greatest warriors in jewish female history so it actually come in came in handy in certain ways like getting <laughs> us on a list of volunteer and then finding out we're going to get a free vaccine as a volunteer pretty early that was right before last year's grammys but in any case i got to vegas uh, I, people at this Neil Diamond was the headlining act. Right. And, uh, and, and I think Babyface came out and said he got COVID at that event, you know, oh, wow. I don't know if I got it at that point, but I do know I took my only flight unmasked to Vegas. I re- did a rehearsal and then felt the most incredible sort of knocked out sort of fluish thing for like, and I went up to my room and uh, slept for like three hours, uh-huh. got up, came down, did the event, 
but that might have been, and then came home and gave my wife the same cold. Who knows? At that point, there was no testing. So I don't know. We never got really sick, but we both got a cold then. So, but then the real truth is the pandemic did get very real very quickly for me because I had just finished the Grammys. Right. And John Prine was a friend. And, you know, I was hanging out with him planning a show for, I think, April or March, where we were going to do the Grammy salute to music legends and he was excited for it i was already planning that we were planning that with him oh god he was one of the first you know he got ill very early even earlier i'm sure maybe you might have known him but i'm sure adam schlesinger uh who was from fountains of wayne a great singer songwriter Mm -hmm. uh but wrote wrote for everyone i worked with him on a bunch of you know emmys and you know those sort of award show events and he was also just one of my favorite singer songwriters right I I have a very vivid memory of Valentine's Day Mm -hmm. trying to get a cheap date we went to a bar (laughs) uh, that so this was before this a little bit right and uh we saw him across a crowded room you know waved because I love the guy and he was one of the first to go uh so it was all very real very quickly and work-wise stuff just and in fact to this day as we were talking about with the grammys it just entered this new world where you book my whole life has been booked to do events right and the dates don't change really almost never but now every the grammys the uh, yeah right. right but now everything is shifting all the time so for right. instance you know like i was just on the phone with my agent yesterday like okay so now that the Grammys are April, how do we adjust? What do we do? And uh, it's, it's, it, you know, I, but I mean, it's not the worst problem. I'm not complaining that way, but it has been, you know, I have to say, I also was a guy who traveled, con- you know, constantly, which I think the one who suffers there is my wife. Like we've never had, we've been married 20, you know, seven years, at least 23 of them happy. And but we've, we've always had, She's always had the benefit of me being away for three months of every year, you know, in New York or Nashville, the places I tend to go or Vegas. And now I'm here in my living room where I do a lot of writing or my backyard where I do a lot of writing. And uh, it's it's strange. Like I, uh, I think a lot, I, I think there are probably people who like being home this much. And I, I do like being home and I feel blessed. I think all of us in LA where we have, good weather to go outside and walk Absolutely. And, and sit outside and work sometimes. That's great. Like I worked on movies from my backyard and I didn't never thought that was possible. Um, wow. But uh, it's all possible now. And uh, yeah, even we did a Ringo, we did a, I helped him with a book he did last year and <laughs> that was going over in a mask and, uh, you know, this year we kept our distance and I, I don't know, I think I'm, maybe I did wear a mask to talk, but you know, for the book, there's like a couple of pictures of us and those are with this. I was like, do we use the mask picture? And I'm like, I hope that when someone looks at this book in a year, they don't want to see another mask that we're over. <laughs> but who knows? We may never be over masked, you know? All right. So this is the, okay. I have so many questions for you. So it sounds like other than the fact that you're in one location, that your life hasn't changed that much. You've been working. You, you're one of the few people that was able to work through this whole thing. Yes. Well, there have been things that have gone away. I will like 
a few of the shows, the CMAs, which are the sort of country right. Grammys, a big music show in Nashville, they happened uh, last year. They yeah. happened. Uh, they happened this year. Uh, they had almost like just the nominees were in the audience last year. This year we were back in an arena. Um, so, but a lot of events, like I work on, I've helped with the upfronts, you know, and a lot of the things went virtual, right. which is a different thing. And people maybe think that's always easier. It's actually kind of harder because work gets stretched out. And like, instead of one day of filming nine performances, like uh, the show that John Prime was, we ended up having to honor him posthumously with right. the help of Brandy Carlisle and Jason Isbell, two of my favorite singer songwriters. But instead of shooting, filming a show one day in one place, we were gonna do it in Pasadena, you're filming all over the place sometimes on a Zoom, sometimes going there, you know, like, in fact, I think the first place I went during the pandemic was to AM Records. I filmed with Henry Wallens and Don Was, and I ran into John Mayer in a mask, and he was the first person to recognize me in a mask, and I was like, <laughs> not bad. Uh, that's a mask drop. Uh, and then he went, David? Uh, <laughs> Um, but that was like, we were in recording studios with, uh, uh, you know, a number of, uh, of great artists for that. And it was so great. Like actually Jimmy Jam, uh, who, I don't know if you saw the Janet Jackson doc recently, but it was, uh, Jimmy Jam is someone who I, I work with on the Grammys. Great guy. Right. Uh, he, um, was hosting this event and we had to make a decision. Can we safely be together? for the, to shoot your host elements. And we went into the recording academy. No one had been in the recording academy. We, it was me, a script prompt guy. Right. Uh, one, like two camera people in a giant room. And that was really the first time I tried to interact with people in the COVID era. And it was super like learning how to sort of, like part of what I do is, I write a lot of jokes and then I laugh right. at my own jokes and, <laughs> and you can't really get a good laughing at your own joke thing going. People don't necessarily hear your laugh when you're wearing like uh, a really uh, a double mask. Uh, so my, my ability to fake that my jokes are funny has really been undercut. I, I've suffered uh, terribly. Well, have you had fear? To, I mean, so you still, you went into an arena, you're do, you're, you obviously had to travel to do that. Are you, do you have, uh, uh, all right, maybe you had COVID already, so maybe you don't have I don't, fear. I, I, yeah, I don't know that, I don't think I did. Uh, okay. I, there's a chance I did. Um, if it was, it was very mild, so I don't want to complain. Uh, but yeah, no, I've been, I think I've been very safe. I've been tested. It's interesting. My wife came this year. She's always come to the Grammys. Right. She couldn't last year because there was like no one there. Right. Wingo is the only person I got to invite <laughs> to the Grammys. Uh, that's actually a great story. Can the I tell fact that you, you please tell that? You know, the fact that Ringo is one of your best friends, the two oh, Beatles. He's not, like, he's not they, one, no, no, no. I, I, they, I, maybe I consider them my good friends. <laughs> I don't know if they consider me their good friends. I think well, like Ringo, I think, likes me fine. That's what I, <laughs> and I love him. Um, but what happened was we needed a presenter for like the last big award. Yeah. And, uh, when, if you look at last year's show, I, I think it was great. Uh, ben Winston, you know, the executive producer really, we, we created 
you know, we did the performances inside, but all artists watching other artists, and that had right. a cool energy. And then we did the awards live outside right. with a very small group in, in the open air. And uh, but we didn't have anyone to present the last award. So, like the Sunday before the show, a week before the show, yeah. I wrote like a Jerry Maguire like long letter. <laughs> asking you know if Ringo would present this award and I sort of we were keeping <laughs> secret where the show was no one right. quite knew that we were like basically above the parking lot at the convention center downtown people didn't know that we it, it was kept top secret we didn't want any crowds coming right so I sort of explained to Ringo I said all you have to do is you you get you driven right to the parking garage of the convention center right you hand out the award you wave at me and you're done, you're back home in an, within the hour. So he got there and he, he, I got the text, they want me to get out of the car. I'm like, what? He <laughs> thought he thought it was like, it was in the early vaccination days. Yeah. He it was like a drive-through vaccination. <laughs> he thought it was a drive-through Grammys where he could just <laughs> walk, you know, from the car, <coughs> present a Grammy to Beyonce or Billie Eilish. Or, and uh, so literally, he, this is a funny story to me. Uh, so he comes up and he goes, I'm not even all dressed up because I thought I was just in the car. No and pants. Went, yeah, he did have pants, uh, but he thought he was casually dressed. But I said, you look great. Now I said that for two reasons. A, he looked great and B, right. I needed to get him on stage. And he was there with Barbara Bach, his wonderful, lovely, amazing wife. And she went, yeah, you look great. Now, the cool thing was forever, my wife has been sort of around me only for the Grammys. And then in recent years, <laughs> our kids went away to school. She came to the CMAs, but she, she generally doesn't really care about what I do. I'm like that. She's not impressed for good reason. Um, she's right. But so, but so she's always gone, but she's not there, but she texts me as soon as Ringo walks into the, onto the stage, she went, Ringo looks amazing. And I show this to Barbara Bach and she goes, wow, that's good, good. And then Ringo walks off the stage. I say, look at that. But what was amazing was <laughs> Ringo is 80 went, that was the biggest trend of the Grammys was people freaking out about how great Ringo looked. And so it went from me kissing his ass to it being the biggest trend of Grammy night. I, I, all right, listen, I just, uh, um, we're going to go dark in a second. If I don't do something, I have to change the internet thing. You talk to everybody for a second and I'm going to go do this. Talk. Oh boy, I guess I'm now hosting the show. Uh, somehow I, I have to get paid to do this. Uh, well, I, I think I'm, I've, I, I've used every name I can drop. So I'll just wait. Talk, oh, talk, oh. talk. Mercury is okay. retrograde and I'm having a nightmare. Okay. Uh, okay. So by the way, I'm just Ringo's, looking that we're on yeah, the wrong Ringo's browser. New book, okay. While you were, oh my Ringo's, God. Ringo's new book uh, <laughs> called Lifted, yes, uh, Bad Memories and Images okay. in, uh, in My Life. In, uh, my, I in somehow. My life. You're, you're not letting me talk. You're actually just speaking. Oh my God. I'm see that. All right. I'm not letting you talk. I'm, I totally am fucking this up, but we're on the wrong internet browser. All right. I'm going to change it because it keeps taking us dark. And I'm going to see if I can do this while we're on the air. Okay. Okay. Is, is that right. working? Yeah, that works. Okay. okay. So. Yes. <laughs> what can I tell you? So, so that was 
it was amazing because it was like a huge uh, appreciation of Ringo moment and I was happy to see it. Okay, so now you have to tell us how you became friends with Ringo because I mean, this is not your, ev your average everyday amigo. Well, it, it, the way I got to know him was, uh, uh, oh boy, big producer calling and I'm gonna ignore him. This is, oh, no. the show is my party. Um, it is, um, this, oh, 32 years ago, almost now, I was assigned by Rolling Stone to interview him. I may have assigned myself the job uh, when he, it was when Ringo went on his first all-star, you know, star with two R's tour, where he would like find, you know, it was that year it was with Billy Preston, Joe Walsh, uh, Dr. John, a bunch of greats. Wow. And, but Ringo had been through a rough few years of alcoholism and he had gone into rehab and he had come out of it and he was convinced uh, or convinced himself that he needed to get back, as he says many times that, you know, drumming is my madness. He needed to, and he had sort of stopped becoming a musician and become a celebrity. And I remember him telling me at one point, I would show up at the opening of an envelope, which was, <laughs> and, and what he really needed to do was get a band and play again. Right. And so uh, I interviewed him for Rolling Stone. And then I moved to LA shortly after that. And so uh, he had me around when he made uh, his first sort of record after that. Right. And then over the years, like whenever he's had a record, he's asked me to come over to the house and film with him. And um, oh, my God. Oh, and his birthday parties, which are <coughs> like public events, but he has a private like party afterwards. Right. He, my favorite story, which I may have told last time, but I'll tell it again. I'm not proud. No, uh, we have a whole new crowd of COVID crazies watching. Go okay. for it. So uh, when my sons were, I think, four and six. Right. Uh, or three and five. Uh, he invited us to come see him and the all-star band at the Universal Amphitheater, which used to exist. Uh -huh. and, <laughs> uh, and so to get my kids to know at that young age who the Beatles were, I tried to take them on a Sunday to that silent movie theater and see uh, Yellow Submarine, which I forgot is so trippy and druggy that it's not really a kid's movie <laughs> like you think it is. It sort of scared one of them. So then oh, we no. got home and I showed them uh, the Ruddles, which was just something I love, the Ruddles. So cut to the next day we go to see Ringo. I didn't know Ringo was going to invite the family backstage before the show. Right. I wasn't, I didn't prep them for that. And we walk in backstage and Ringo sees my little son who looks like, you know, he was a tiny kid uh, with a big mouth. And he said, go figure. And uh, <laughs> he said, oh my God, you're too young to even know who I am. To which my son said, uh, I know who you are. You were a ruddle, right? To which point Ringo laughed. He goes, uh, I wasn't that lucky, son. And you will actually, if you read the new Ringo book, Lifted, and the section where Ringo thanks me, I repeat that story in greater detail. So I would suggest ordering either the $498 signature edition signed by Ringo, wow. or the, the cheaper $49 version is good too. You go to Julian's Auction. If you know Julian's Auction online, you order that. But in any case, so cut to a couple years, maybe four or five years later, he was having one of his birthday parties at Capitol Studios. It was like, you know, the Hollywood Walk of Fame, there's a public. Right. And then he invites, you know, his buddies 
plus me. I'm not a buddy, but I'm you know, his talented <laughs> friends and me. And uh, at the last minute, some friend can't come or Fran, my wife can't come. So I say to my son, Alec, come with me. So we walk into the studio, at which point one of the more surreal moments I've ever seen was Ringo walked over to my son. He goes, I need you for a minute. He took him <laughs> by the hand across Capitol Studios where Frank Sinatra recorded all the greatest songs of all time. And he walks him over to Eric Idle. And he says, tell him what you said when you met me. At which point I thought, if at <laughs> eight or nine years old, a beetle had taken me by the hand and led me over to a Monty Python and asked me to quote myself, my head would have exploded. Because those are literally the two defining forces of pop culture in my career are rock and roll and comedy. And it's nuts. But that's, uh, yeah, so that story is recounted in Lifted, uh, which when you were doing technical things, I try to get the subtitle right. I think it's uh, Fab Images in My Life with the Beatles from Across the Universe or something like that. Uh, and now tell me again how much the signed by Ringo copy is. I well, it go, it's all for charity. So this goes to a good cause. Okay. So uh -huh. I'm saying if you're, if you're, if you got a money, and you want, remember, Ringo sort of stopped famously signing autographs years ago. So if you want one, if you saw Get Back and you're We're rich, gonna That's the next thing I want to talk about. Yeah. You can get it, the signed edition, which comes in an amazing box. It's beautiful. Um, that's for under, I guess it's cash back from your 500. I think it's like $494 or whatever it is. And then the other one is under 50. Unsigned. Fantastic. Um, we're going to talk about your books, uh, but- you mentioned Get Back, which is one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because I just want your opinion, because it, from, all right, you weren't a Beatle fan when you were a little kid, because you were too, you were, you weren't, you were too little, you weren't, didn't exist, you were not. No, I, I was just too little to remember anything until sort of what I do remember are, I'm really a 70s, I, you know, I remember the music of the 70s, so, right, like, I went backwards from Band on the Run and, you know, like uh, the solo John Lennon and Ringo's first solo records. You right. Know. And so how about George? Were you, I, you oh. have a, a, a great George story too, but were you, um, George was, I was a George. Did, did you, all things must pass and all that stuff? Was that in your? I, I, you know, what's funny is I've never understood the need to choose because <laughs> you don't actually <laughs> have to choose. It's like in marriage, I feel like you have to choose. And maybe, maybe that's what women are going, I'm a John girl or I'm a Drew, I love Ringo. Maybe they were thinking about who they were going to marry. That's what they, it was. We yes. were seven. It was right. who we were going to marry. And my dog's name was Ringo when I was, you yes. know, not, that's the way it was. But, okay, so when, when did you discover them, become a fan? Okay, so you individually, but when did you become a Beatles fan? Well, my parents did have a couple records and I thought they were mm -hmm. great, but that you know this is like eight track tape days so uh, <laughs> uh it really was i would say when i was like um you know i heard records like band on the run i heard right. ringo's big you know album ringo uh i heard john lennon walls and bridges i bought that's like the first one i bought and then i remember wings over america which was a paul live record right <laughs> it had a couple beatles songs and that was like then I bought the Beatles record sometime. And there was sort of a, in the seventies, there was a Beatles comeback, uh, you know, when there was like these 
cheesy records like rock and roll music. They did like compilations, but I bought those red and blue compilations and and rediscovered it and became, you know, what I'm I'm one of the biggest Beatle fans you know. So that yeah, if you watch that 60s British invasion show, it's hysterical because I like it's me and Tom Hanks. Uh, and Questlove a little bit, and Susanna Hoffs, I guess, we're the ones recounting the story of uh, the Beatles on Sullivan. Ironically, that's like, I'm, I, yeah, that, I, I, those are not my firsthand memories. I do remember, I, I, my kids know, they're embarrassed to say, I, my TV moment on rock and roll was seeing uh, the raspberries on like Don <laughs> Kirshner's Midnight Special, and <laughs> The Bay City Rollers on Howard Cosell's show. That was this generationally where when I was became a music fan and then right. immediately started writing for my middle school paper, college paper, uh, you know, and and ended up going to Rolling Stone. We're going to talk. All right. Maybe we have to talk about that now. All right. But before we talk about that, I want to talk about your feelings about Get Back, because for me, it was like a religious experience. I mean, did it move you as much as it moved those of us who remember that, I don't know. I mean, what was it like for you to watch Get Back? Well, it was really fascinating because I was with Ringo in October, I think it was, working on this book. And he told me, it's fantastic. You are going to love this. And he invited me to a screening. Oh they did a hundred, the hundred minute version. They screened with like, and Ringo came to the one in LA. Paul and How Ringo could there be a hundred minute version? I can't even imagine such a thing. Peter, ja Peter Jackson edited for this, like to create excitement, a sort of mini premiere. They wow. did a screening in London. I think they did one in New York. They did one in LA. I couldn't go because I was working on a Scarlett Johansson event at the Beverly Hilton. So I, so I was <coughs> so, but I'm glad I didn't see it in that version because mm -hmm. instead I just was, uh, and, and I should say sometime in the seventies, maybe when I was at Cornell, there was a midnight movie where they showed Let It Be. It got very hard for many years to see Let It Be. Right. And I think Cornell had a great like film program and I think I saw it as a midnight movie and it bummed me out. It was such a bleak vision of the Beatles. That's like, you know, I think I saw that before I went back and saw ever Hard Day's Night, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. Right. And so I always assumed that that's what it was like. And then Ringo got into a little kerfuffle with um, mm -hmm. Michael uh, Lindsay Hogg yeah. Like, oh my it, god, what a before the movie came out, like Ringo said something about, I think this is the movie, this is the truth. And Ringo, the one thing he said to me eight million times, and it's all over this book, right? Uh, he said, There was always love, we always loved each other. He goes, It got complicated, but and you have we were brothers, we had fights like brothers, you know, mm -hmm. we were family. And I think what's funny, it's like a great mystery that's finally solved is because Michael Lindsay Hogg is not in Let It Be. And <laughs> I think you and I have the same, for the most part, I think he really couldn't be more insufferable than he it is. Was, he, oh movie. my God, he is impossible. Abs and Ringo was totally Switzerland. Did you get that? I mean, like he was like through the whole thing. He, he was so, but the love, I mean, it makes me cry thinking about it. That last, that the last, uh, chapter 
that concert, those guys together, it was, that was one of the most magical things I've ever seen in my life. Even look at the moment where George comes over when Ringo's working, starting to work on Octopus's Garden. And that's like, oh, that's like the love, the friendship, the collaboration. And it's something to drop another name. Years ago, when I moved here in 91, uh, Tom Petty and his wife, first wife Jane, sort of adopted me and had me over all the time. And I didn't know anyone. So it was really nice. And they were great. They, you know, I still know Jane and Tom was great. But mm-hmm. Tom was an original Beatles fanatic and he had befriended George and knew Ringo pretty well. So he had, at that point in 91, I think from George, gotten all the work tapes, all the raw recordings from George of what the Beatles had done. And he used to sit and play them to me. And he would say, David, it's fucking incredible. (laughs) Because these guys, the minute they played, they locked in. He goes, whatever was going on, they were amazing. They They were a perfect band together. And it's funny, like, that's what I see is like, all right, I want to know what you learned because I I learned things about the Beatles watching Get Back. What what did you what what were some of your takeaways watching Get Back? I, I guess I you know because of I, I sort of hadn't realized George uh, John's drug problem had mm-hmm. happened that early, and I mean as opposed to I'm sure they all were stoned occasionally, and you know I think Ringo was already probably beginning to drink, but and. But I, I will say I didn't like when you saw John sort of out of it in the first yeah. part, that was <clears throat> really surprising to me. And I was a little it was like a little hard emotionally to watch that. Mm-hmm. And it's great that over the course of the, you know, he comes uh, to he comes like, to yeah, yeah. You see him. But you do also see <clears throat> I think Paul always got a bad rap about like uh, being pushy, you know, and dominating and all that. I think, you know, A, you see his genius, which I've seen up close. I don't know him nearly as well as I know Ringo, but like that moment with Get Back where he's just spontaneously playing. I I had my version of it where we were in South America on a bus talking and he's sort of hitting, he has like, someone has sent him free sneakers. Like, I guess when you're a Beatle, you get a lot of free (laughs) footwear. Um, a lot of swag yeah yeah and he was hitting he was hitting it and I went I'm gradually noticing musically he's making great music on a shoebox like that's the thing about there are certain people I've been around Stevie Wonder is the other obvious one they just music pours out of them they are never not making music like uh, I got to on the Grammys many years ago, Stevie, right before the show, called me back to his dressing room and said, let's write two little songs so I can sing one to, he was presenting with Celine Dion and Bonnie Raitt. And so he goes, let's just write two little, like 20 second songs I can sing to each of them. So I'm like, I'm gonna co, and I, my wife- Wait was, a minute, you co-wrote songs with Stevie Wonder? Well, I, they're not like his big copyrights, but yes, he sang, uh, he said, Tell me what, look at what they're wearing for the show. And then the joke is- He needed you. He he likes, no, he likes, he likes jokes about, you know, he likes a good blind joke. So, (laughs) so we wrote like, I think she was, uh, one of them was like, (laughs) oh, I think Bonnie's dress was like, had a lot of metallic stuff on it. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, 
I said, well, maybe sing a song for her called Bonnie, pin that metal, pin some metal on me, like <laughs> hug me kind of thing. And then I think Celine was wearing something salmon colored. So it was like uh, sexy and salmon, like he paid tribute to her. But so, but I do remember it's very funny because it was, it was one of the, like, there's craziness on Grammy night always like, and my wife was trying to get backstage and was having a problem with her past. Alicia Keys was trying to get to me to rehearse, who later I worked with her as a host for two years, but she was the first presenter with Stevie, but she wanted to rehearse. But Stevie was like, no, no, we got to write the songs first. And then we'll, (laughs) and so this is all happening. It's sort of like my favorite year kind of of rock and roll. My favorite movie, yes. (laughs) So, yeah. So, all right. So, so, Getting back to Paul, that's a great story about Stevie. Um, getting back to Paul, um, for me, I, I thought the same thing. So he's bossy, all of that. To me, Lennon got a lot of credit on for a lot of songs that Paul did a lot of work on right there and there. And I was shocked. Those whole all that that whole Lennon McCartney thing. I, mean, I, I think Paul was well, I think that was a moment in time where Paul, like John was detaching from the group. Right. And Paul was trying to keep him in and helping pull out the songs. I will, I do think it seems incredibly gracious the way, like by the time they get to the roof, you think John is dominating the writing. I will say it made it even more poignant to me. Like Ringo had told me how good the movie was, but I was I love that. I love that Ringo loves it. That's oh, he loves fabulous. it. No, no, he loved it. And I was, it was really emotional, very powerful for me. And then one of the things that really hit me was when McCartney first came to the Grammys and there's a crazy story, but that with my kids. Yes, um, and you have to tell that story. It's a great story, but But, anyway. But when he was performing, he at one point said, called me over, he goes, what should I say at the end of my performance? Uh, And I said, how about hope i had seen let it be you know that one time right. I remembered the famous line of like john says um you know hope we pass the audition <laughs> and so i said paul why don't you say i hope we pass the grammy audition and he did it was like wow. a nod to john wow. because I, I think like nothing makes paul look better than when he nods to john because people try to pit that's the insanity is people try to pit the Beatles women against everyone or the Beatles against each other. And it's a lot of crap. They were a family. You know, there's, there was so much love. Linda, Linda changed my life. We're going to talk about that. See, I don't want to make you tell all your old stories, but I, we have, because they're new to this crowd, but, but I think that's what get back settles once and for all. I think we all finally get how much love there was. I mean, I had my own vision of what broke them at Yoko and all that crap. And Yoko sat there silently through the whole thing. I think Michael Lindsay Hogg, <laughs> I think, listen, I'll give, I'll give him this much credit. I think he seems, I, you know, the story is he's apparently supposedly, you know, uh, Orson Welles' son, really, right? You know that. I did look know. that up. That's, and Henry Jacklin's a good friend of mine. He wrote the Orson. Wait, really? Oh yeah. Well, look it up. It's very. I think it's clear he is. He he talks like him. He looks like him. And wow. I, uh, uh, but yeah, maybe your friend Henry will confirm it or not. But he'll know for sure. I think he felt 
jerked around when he had to look at all that footage. And so I think he made, and also the Beatles did break up by the time the movie was coming up. Right. So he made a movie about how they were hated each other. And the truth is, I think Peter Jackson, everyone, like including me, was worried this was going to be a whitewash and it was going to be like a publicity stunt. But I think in in by using by making it because of the pandemic, probably, instead of it being a three-hour thing, by it being all those hours, I think the truth is we're seeing uh, a more honest depiction of what was going on. And part of it is he was annoying them. You know, he was like, <laughs> he was telling them to do stupid things. Stupid. I think he, he, now listen, I think in the end, he and Glenn Johns and maybe, you know, they helped get them to the roof. And the roof is one of the greatest things <gasps> in history. It's, you know, uh, so, but I will say like, I, I, yeah, I couldn't have loved that movie more. One of the things that was really moving to me was I knew Linda, you know, for a short time really well. Okay. You got to tell the story. I went on the road, uh, in the nineties, uh, with them. And it happened to be, I had just met my wife and then I went on the road with them in America and then South America. I was gone for like a month or a little while and when I got back to the States we were in New York mm -hmm. and Linda took a liking to me for reasons no one likes me but <laughs> she she did and she and she said to me uh first of all she said <clears throat> I'm gonna take a oh she goes I took a picture of you backstage when you weren't looking and because wow. I want you I'm gonna send it to you it's your author's photo use it as an author's photo for anybody By the way, for anybody who doesn't know she was a brilliant photographer oh brilliant yeah but I knew her at that era and I'd met her actually, that's not true. I'd met her briefly on the press to play, like at Radio City uh, announcement. And But I'd met her, but to see her in that moment and get back, she's like, hey, she's not that this is important, but she might be one of the most beautiful women you've ever seen in those scenes and get back. It's just like, I'd not, she was seeing her as a young woman was like crazy to me because I hadn't really, I wow. hadn't. And it was sort of like seeing, her and Paul in the sort of throes of their lo first love. Mm -hmm. And what happened in my case was she said to me, do you have a girlfriend? Like, and I think I, in retrospect, I think, was she going to hook me up with some relative? Like, could I have gotten to be a third level cousin of a McCartney or something? <laughs> I don't know. But she said, I think mishpacha. you could have been mishpacha. Yes. Uh, and she has, uh, Linda Eastman would have had mishpacha, <laughs> elegant mishpacha. But she, uh, I said, I just met a girl and she goes, I want to meet her. And I went, well, she's actually in New York on a family thing. She goes, bring her to, and he, they were playing like giant stadium the next day. And she goes, I want you to bring her to sound check and we'll have lunch. I want to meet her. So that's like my fifth or sixth date with my wife was come out to the stadium, watch. Now my wife doesn't give a, at that point, didn't know anything or care anything about music not a music person. So we're, wow. that's, like, we're opposites. She's a MBA business manager. Like, you know, wow. not, not, she had one album when I, one album on cassette when I met her. Uh, and, uh, but we had lunch with Linda and Linda called me over like in the even she had to be impressed. No, I think she was impressed. Yeah. <laughs> she, was. But, uh, she didn't know the songs, but she's impressed, but she, uh, Linda called me over and said, do you think I know about marriage? Which is a funny thing. Like, whoever says that to you? 
I went, yeah, you have a great marriage. And I come from a divorced home. So I didn't know much about great marriages, uh, but I could tell they had one. And she goes, marry that girl right away. And I, no one, who tells you that? Like maybe a relative, wow. uh, and then you don't listen because who cares about what a relative says? <laughs> but I somehow, it made, a, it, it made a point with me and we were married, like engaged by the end of that year uh, pretty quickly. And it worked out okay. Uh, 27 years for me, later. not for her. For her, it's, been, <laughs> it's not a happy story for her. This is a tragedy for her. Um, so now, all right, I, I hate making you tell your greatest hits, but you got to, it's like, it would be like the Beatles getting up and not singing. She loves you. You got to do it. So w- w- tell the story with Paul, with your, with your kids. Oh, so, um, um, so years later, um, and it is like an intermediate thing because I did a show on Bravo I hosted called Musicians and uh, Mary McCartney uh, was the step photographer. And be, by being around her, I knew when he, Paul remarried right after when Linda passed away, mm. rest her soul. Um, and then that was not a happy marriage. And then he's fortunately, you know, married again to Nancy and that's a happy marriage. But in the period where he was going through some rough emotional times he came and did the grammys for the first time my wife was coming with our kids i think it was their first time coming to the grammys with her and they were coming from backstage down the hall and this is before she got to me she passed a guy in the hall who said stop and it was paul mccartney and he goes i need a picture with those boys and handed and so uh she took the picture of my boys with Paul. And that's the picture. I was going to put it in the composite and I did it on purpose because I wanted you to be able to tell the story and show the picture because I knew you would on your phone. Yeah, this is uh, this is the picture of him backstage with my boys. Now, the crazy version of this, the crazy truth of this story is we did a Beatles Grammy tribute like two days later. I never asked Paul, like my wife just came back and said, you got to see this picture. And she goes, I don't know why he asked. And there was always this thing in my head of like, did he ask because he recognized you from that? Or it was like many years later, he couldn't have, you know. And then I said, it's either he thought they were the Jonas Brothers (laughs) who were on the show that year, uh, or it was Linda's spirit. It was Linda somehow doing this. Wow. So cut to four years later, whatever, we're doing the 60th Grammy TV special. And I'm sent to Chicago to interview Paul about his times on the Grammys. And he's Paul McCartney. He's a busy guy. So they give me 15 minutes on the side of the stage before he goes on. We're set up with a crew. And so we finish a minute before he's going on stage. So we're in the wings. We're shutting down the cameras. And I say, Paul, we have another 30 seconds. Let me ask you one question. I show him the picture and I say, was that, you thought they were the Jonas Brothers or was that Linda's? He, and he started, he goes, don't make me cry before I go on stage. Which to me was his way of saying, in our hearts, both of us, it was Linda doing that. Uh, so that's why that- Oh, that's a nice new tag yeah. to the story. That, so that picture will always be on my uh, 
phone. That is a great tag to that story. Oh my God. All right. So before we get into more classic uh, greatest hits of David Wilde, let, let me talk about some new things with you. Tell me how you feel about what I know you, you were friends with Whoopi. Um, how do you feel about what's going I, I, on? I, I don't think I'm friends with Whoopi. I've met her a few times. Oh, I thought, with, I, okay. You, but no, you, no. you've worked with Whoopi. Yes. No, in fact, yeah. she, it's a weird time in the world right now because she, when there was one or two jokes that I have written, where, mm -hmm. which became controversial in some way. One of How, them, yeah, go ahead. One comes to mind at the CMAs. There was a year, like, there was a year, um, you know, country music grapples with the issue of race. Uh, and there was one year that we were uh, on a Wednesday night, we're a Wednesday mm -hmm. night, so we were preempting blackish. So, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and so uh, we did a joke. Right. Mock, a, a self sort of mocking joke, which was uh, blackish will not be seen tonight, so we can bring you whitish. Whitish. And that was uh, <laughs> Carrie Underwood and Brad Paisley. It, now it got a huge laugh, but also some people were saying that's racist and, you know, freaking out. Whoopi is the one person, she went on The View the next day and said, that's the best joke I've heard all year. And I was like, thank God. And that's happened another time or two. So I, again, I, I will be honest, I'm not going out and tweeting this because I don't want, you know, I, I trying not to get involved in fights. Right, right. But personally, I think she apologized for saying something stupid, which if you, if you, if you, if you suspended people on The View for saying something stupid or any one of these shows, no one would be on the show. And so, I don't, I personally did not like, I think what she said was a misstatement and sort of a misunderstanding that, you know. Uh, the Holocaust wasn't race, wasn't about race. Was Is that what she said? You, you know, I don't want to try to quote her or misquote her. I think it was a, a stupidly stated, I say stupid things all the time. I have probably three so far. So I personally didn't, I wasn't <coughs> offended and, you know, the, uh, whatever organization, great Jewish organizations, they forgave her when she apologized. And so I'm not, I, I, I personally think, I don't think any of us are benefiting from the level of trying to cancel everybody. I think we should cancel those who are really doing damage to the society. And okay, now let's talk about that. So let's talk about Joe Rogan and uh, Neil Young for a moment. Uh, uh, Crosby, Sills and Nash came out today and said that they are taking pulling their music as well. Um, what, well, what they, you... they're, they're, they're sort of, they actually couldn't say that yet. Neil Young has said that. No, uh, David Crosby said today. No, he said he stands in support, but he doesn't own his music. Oh. Uh, so he sold his music. A lot of these people have sold oh. their music. So they don't necessarily control it in every case. Okay. No, Graham Nash said he's taking his music off, I believe. I don't know if Stills has. I haven't followed it extremely today. I personally, it's funny that my feeling, mm -hmm. uh, I can't talk about it yet, but I'm going to do a podcast, not with with uh, Spotify. I And I met Joe Rogan. I wrote about news radio in a book I did called The Showrunners. Nice enough guy, funny enough guy. I don't. His manager is one of my oldest and dearest yeah, friends. I don't really listen. I've listened to the podcast a few times. Mm -hmm. It seems like he's saying some really stupid shit that he has no business talking about. In the time mm -hmm. when misinformation about COVID is is like, that's you know to me it seems insane. But so I personally I 
I think what's funny is I just tweeted my only statement. Right. I tweeted when it happened. I just did a picture of Joni and Neil that was at my bar mitzvah table because I had like a rock themed bar mitzvah in the 70s. And <laughs> I put that picture up and I just said, heroes then, heroes now. Because I think it's great that these old hippies, and I know Joni better than I know Neil, but I've interviewed them both. I like them standing up for what they believe. Mm-hmm. I don't so, know. I'm not saying I, I'm, I'm an Apple music guy, so I, I don't care. But uh, I personally think it's, it's wrong that Spotify is built its, built its success on musicians' music and doesn't pay them well and then pays hundreds of millions of dollars to Joe Rogan for spreading a bunch of bullshit. It's not. And what's funny is I tweeted that it got it had I think it has 25,000 likes right now. If you look at that tweet. Wow. It got, and, but then a day or two later, you start getting the people going, you liberal, you know, the, I'm getting right. insults and I'm, you know, part of me wants to delete it, but I don't, I want to stand up for what I believe in, but I'm not, I never said cancel Spotify, any of that. I just think they're not a government. It's like, I think we should stand up for what we, we better stand up for what we believe in. Cause there's a lot of people on the bad side standing up for what they believe in. Well, you know, I was wondering as a journalist and uh, a, a, that you are. I'm not really um, one anymore, though. That, to be honest, I'm, I'm really a TV writer and producer at this point. I, I was a Rolling Stone journalist for many years. I was an Esquire, but I write stuff for people. But really, I'm, I can no longer claim or practice objective journalism, particularly. But there was a time when that was your what? Well, I wouldn't say that you had to be objective even back then, right? No. Everything you've always written yeah. has been a subjective thing. Yeah, I'm, um, a, I'm more of a music critic and uh, yeah, and, an, and a profile writer. Into, That's what I was. So I was just wondering if you have an opinion about Joe's right. I don't think he has the right to give misinformation in a pandemic. I, I just think that's unconscionable and people die from that stuff. So it's a whole different level, but I think you kind of answered that. Yeah, my, my feeling is I'm, listen, I'm, uh, I'm for freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. I'm also for freedom of speech to say Spotify, you, you know, if people want to sell Spotify stock and say, this is not, I don't want to support this. That's not freedom of speech. That's the, the marketplace addressing an irresponsible business practice, I think. Absolutely. I agree. Okay. So let's go. So David, how, for those who don't know you, how, how did this whole, tell, tell everybody what your dream job was when you were a kid. Rolling Stone magazine would, would have been it. And in fact, yeah, I was, uh, I went to a prep school in New England and uh, I went back years later and I ran into somebody I went to school with and he went, David, uh, what are you doing now? Working at Rolling Stone? I went, yeah. I thought he knew that I was. And he went, I was joking. And I go, why would you joke? He goes, when you were in high school, you said, I'm going to work at Rolling Stone magazine. And so I literally did get my dream job. I was totally lucky. It was, uh, <coughs> sorry, not COVID, just a cough. Um, basically, uh, I started writing in my middle school, high school, college papers. And then um, at Cornell, I had a visiting professor in creative writing named William Kennedy, who wrote Ironweed the year I was with him. He 
he got the Pulitzer Prize. And between him and an editor named David Hershey at Esquire, I'm sorry, he I'd worked, I'd interned at another magazine with David Hershey. David Hershey, I'm graduating, and he goes, Okay, you can you want to work at Esquire? Get William Kennedy to write a recommendation. And I walked right from my last class at Cornell to Esquire. Which is not a shabby place to come from to begin with. I Mr. Ivy League, yeah. Yeah, well, lower Ivy, hotter <laughs> Ivy. Not, not, not hardcore, not strong. It's, it's, Ivy. it's Ivy. It's yeah. Ivy. Um, well, yeah. My dad went there, so I was a legacy. So I, I, I just barely got in. Uh, well, you've proved your mettle, I think. What, um, your parents must have been incredibly proud, must be, if they what must have been incredibly proud of. Uh, yeah, well, thank you. I, my dad, they're both gone. Uh, my dad was amazing that way because uh, he never knew his dad. He never had a dad. Oh, wow. Uh, for a reason I probably don't have time to get into. So I've always think, I've always said the most impressive thing I've ever seen a human do, I've been around a lot of great artists and all that, but the most impressive thing was that my dad who never met his dad or actually met him once in a train station and said hi as he was going to war. That's a wow. true weird story. But my dad was a great dad and he supported, like he was a businessman and he he's the only person I think who ever really fired me and because I was like working in his office cleaning and stuff. And he went, you're useless at this. <laughs> and so he encouraged me to follow my dreams because he knew <laughs> I was not going to take over his business. Um, and he, but he, he, he used to have a briefcase and he carried my articles around and was, you know, he, was he was very, very proud. And uh, he came, I'm thank God that when I, I hosted a show on Bravo called Musicians for a couple of seasons. He and my mom both, even though they were very separated, they both came to one of the shows and watched, like he got to see me interview Tony Bennett oh, and wow. my mom got to see me interview Barry Manilow. So they both wow. were, had, had a little, a little knockus. Uh, but yes, they were, my mom, they were both really good writers and not professionally. My mom should have been. And my dad just had like a, my dad wrote like Hemingway, my mom wrote like Fitzgerald, and they fought just like Hemingway and Fitzgerald. <laughs> uh, but they were both really talented writers. And, uh, and yes, I, I, I think they were moderately proud of me. My mom used to watch every show I wrote, every TV show I wrote. And I don't know what she got out of some of these sort of like hip hop <laughs> awards and things, but she always watched. And like one year she did like Bob Dylan and she asked me to get her tickets to Bob Dylan. And she told me later that she just tried to walk backstage and tell him, my son is David Wilde, but I think she had trouble getting backstage. <laughs> Speaking of Dylan, I know you named your son after him and I know that yeah. he is your ultimate. Uh, you have a wonderful, I don't know if I wanna, I mean, if you wanna mine the Dylan, like how did you get to know Bob? I wouldn't say, it's not like I'm close to Bob, he's my hero, but I did have an incident where first, I think I was doing a Tom Petty cover story and I requested that he talk to me and he, he didn't even talk for his own cover stories at that point, but he did, this, that's a crazy long story I may have told last time, but I, it basically, I, I sat in a hotel for three days waiting for him to call and had a crazy conversation that's everything you'd ever want. But then I, he asked me to write liner notes for an album 
And his advice, his request was the greatest writing advice I ever heard, which was just use nouns, no adjectives. And I'm like, and that's the secret of writing. There's Hemingway. Stephen King now, says the same thing in On Writing. That's it. That, that, that was, and I think I, I slipped a few adjectives in, but I think that's okay. Use nouns. Uh, and then uh, after that, there was after 9-11, I was the head writer for the Tribute to Heroes telethon. Is that where you met Phil? No, we actually had already, I'd, I'd written about Raymond when it started. Mm. They loved the article. And then we, but we sort of knew each other casually. Mm -hmm. And then what happened was uh, when the tribute, when 9-11 hit, mm -hmm. I was working as a head writer of this. I went, 9-11 was on like a, was it a Tuesday? Is that right? Uh, a Tuesday or Wednesday. It was that, a Tuesday. The, 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 the tribute to heroes was the next week, the next Friday, wow. that weekend, it was a Jewish holiday or something. And I had to go to a, like, my wife goes, I have just working around the clock, which because you have to go to the park with the kids for <clears throat> some temple thing. Phil was there and I wanted to Phil and I said, Phil, will you help me? Because a, we can write together. You can help me write. And also I said, I don't really know how to work at this. This is early in my career. It's like the first, my first Emmy nomination, my first big, first time I was a head writer for anything. Wow. And, and he said, uh, I said, I don't know how to tell Julia Roberts, Clint Eastwood. I can't direct it. Joel Gallen was directing from the truck, but I meant to give them line readings. So Phil became, we, we spent like four days locked in a room together, working on that. And we've been close ever since then. Okay, so some tell us some of the best meals you've had with Phil, going totally in a different direction. Uh, I don't know where to begin. I, um, well, I know, but pick a couple favorites. Well, we did, a, we did an event, we did a show like inside the writer's room with Ray mm -hmm. and the whole, all the guys and the writers in Hawaii. And we just went, to every great restaurant in Hawaii. I can't even, that, so that was just sort of like the best atmosphere to have a series of dinners. I think one of the great meals was like, no matter where you are, Phil finds the great food. So I think we were in like Scottsdale or we were in Phoenix and he took us to Scottsdale because he heard the best pizza in, the, in America is actually in Arizona. Stop that, come on. <clears throat> he actually, you could ask Phil about this. He went back with Jack Nicholson and James L. Brooks to the same place because it's I can't, I think it's called Pizza Bianco or something like that. You could look it up, but it was it was the best pizza I ever had, other than Italy, the best pizza in America I ever had. Better than New York pizza? Are you kidding me? Talk to Phil. That's I'm sending my friend Andy there tomorrow. That is insane. I don't know if it's still that good, but it was all those years ago. Wow. Uh, but right. I had. I've had, you know, he's actually during the pandemic, the only person I was seeing for a lot, like other than my wife. And it's funny, <clears throat> my wife and I went out for sushi or actually brought sushi in last weekend and she had not had sushi since the pandemic started. Like we've only, like we went to a graduation, we went to New Orleans and we went to a wedding in back East, but she hasn't traveled other than that. We're actually going away for a little weekend trip this weekend, but we've, we've been very, you know, safe, but my wife hasn't had sushi. I have had it 
19 times because we've had, I've had lunch almost every week during the pandemic with Phil. And we often brought in the like boxed, you know, great sushi lunches. Uh, what's so, your, what's your favorite sushi in LA? You know, <clears throat> I don't want to be an expert because I'm not, I just like the free food. <laughs> the best, free food is good. I like free. Phil told me about, my friend owns Nobu in New York, but he told me, Phil told me about Nobu Malibu. And I finally went a few weeks ago. It is the most gorgeous. He said it was the most beautiful restaurant. It's the most gorgeous place. Amazing. It is amazing. Yes. Yeah, so that's one of the best places I've ever been for sure. Um, okay. So talking about other people that you, that, all right, this is totally, I'm pulling out of left field because I just thought of it. I know that you had an experience with Van Morrison, which, uh, how, you, Van Morrison is another one who's like an anti-vaxxer on that whole uh, Clapton thing. Do you have an opinion about that? Uh, Van, my story with Van, we don't have time for it. It is a 20 minute story, but <laughs> it involves him torturing me, running away from me after asking me to interview him. It, he put me through hell, uh, ended up with a great interview and ended up him thinking we were friends, but he was, he was a tough one. And uh, so him being difficult is not as surprising as Clapton, who, you know, the racist charge, which had been out there years ago, mm -hmm. you know, I guess people sort of wrongly, I think, sort of forgot about that to a large degree. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Listen, I, again, I believe in freedom of speech, but I don't, I literally can't understand why Van Morrison or Eric Clapton want to put out records to give people bad medical advice. Like, you know, uh, <laughs> neither one of them is, I would consider a top physician. <laughs> you know, my my father-in-law is a, is a great doctor and politically different than me. You know, he's conservative fiscally or whatever, but like, <clears throat> I just always have gone by like, you know, having a doctor in your family who takes it very seriously. And it, it, it just sort of like impressed me right away that like the people who like, uh, again, even this woman is a Barry Weiss. I don't really know her, but the one who went on Bill Maher the other day and said, it's over. It's like, you know, I, I, I can't stand the presumption in some of this that like the rest of us love it. You know, it's like, you know, <laughs> like having done, having done shows in a mask you know, like a medical mask for yeah. 19 hours a day when you're working. I do not like it, you know. Uh, famous people, there are a few famous people who don't mind it that all of a sudden you can hide more, but uh, I don't have to worry about that. So, uh, but yeah, no, I, I mean, listen, I, I, I hope and pray we are almost there, but uh, yeah, I don't, and I had a, I've had a nice experience with Clapton, you know, uh, I had a, in the end, fun with, even with Van, but I just don't get it. I don't get, uh, but yeah, I mean, you're not going to convince anybody of anything. And uh, yeah, I, yeah, it, it's very interesting. I was just asked about working on a project with someone from a very different political point of view. And I, my inclination is I want to do that because I'm tired of us being divided by politics. It, it never was that way. You know, it's like, uh, the past few years have actually brought me together with my family because we're all sort of on the same page. We were politically different. I sort of think a pandemic is one of those things that is way beyond politics. You know, it's like, 
clearly the disease does not care about what party you are. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, it, yeah, it's, I guess it's something we won't solve on this. Uh, okay, so let's go back to some fun before I have to give you up. So picture says a thousand, you have pictures with everybody. So what's your, I know Justin Timberlake is somebody in your world. How, what's that about? <laughs> no, I mean, I worked with him a great deal over the years. I met him as a, when he was a kid within sync, you know, I went to interview wow. them. They were nobody in with Lou Pearlman, the in notorious Lou Pearlman in a uh, industrial park in, in, you know, in Florida. And, but Justin was always amazing. Like he, he pulled me out of the studio you know, and he had just gotten a car, his first car. He got in and played me his like music. And, you know, he, he, he was already on the ball. And then I ended up working on a lot of his sort of speeches and hosting things. And he's very smart. Uh, but it's interesting. Like, uh, I don't know if you watched the Janet Jackson thing, but like, you know, it's like, no, even if you're smart, you can get in trouble very easily these days. And, you know, and you can say, you know, I think, again, if you say enough, you will say something stupid, which, <laughs> you know, and I actually don't think, I think he's, you know, he's gotten in some trouble. Like John Mayer is another like guy who I've worked with, who I really like, and I know him to be really funny and smart. And he said a few really, you know, dumb things and stepped in it. And uh, yeah, I, so I, I, I wish we could, you know, it's that, it's we're in a strange time where uh like i hope we can focus on the real bad guys you know like uh and there's no shortage of real bad guys you know mm -hmm. like let's I, I it bothers me that harvey weinstein has been you know imprisoned mainly during a pandemic when we're all sort of imprisoned like i, would like, <laughs> I, want, I want him imprisoned missing fun he, he's one of the only guys i ever got into a screaming match with at the, at the White House, uh, where I was writing a speech for Clinton for a, a pro school and music show, which Meryl Streep was part of, because it was Music of the Heart was a movie where she played a music teacher. And he wanted me to keep like plugging Music from the Heart, or whatever the movie was called, like it was an infomercial. And I said, and when you write for a president, which I've gotten to do a few times, it's wow. not like writing for other any other star. You write and it goes to their speech writers and it goes to Secret Service and you get it sent back to you on a, then it was like a drive. You know, it's like, you don't, you don't, you're not in charge. They're in charge. <laughs> yeah. But there was a locked and loaded speech for Clinton. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and Harvey Weinstein got in my face and said, put in three more references to the movie. And I you know, I'm not an argumentative guy. I don't know if you have, have that sense, but I'm, I, de I tend never to, I've not argued with my wife yet. I don't even raise my voice, but I was like, <laughs> you know, I said, Mr. Weinstein, you don't want me to do an infomercial with the president, the leader of the free world. It's not appropriate. And he went, I do want you to do it. Like put his finger and like pushed me. And I was like, wow. All right, this is a bad guy. And it's like, and that was what I dealt with, with him. And I worked with him right before he got popped on another show ironically about the prison system uh <laughs> i worked with him the weeks before uh he was a uh, me too uh wow but and he was an asshole then too uh but uh yeah it's just a very very uh a very very strange world we're living in 
So David, I, they postponed the Grammys. How is there a projection of how they're going to? They, I thought they handled the Grammys really well last year, actually. Oh, um, yeah, I was really proud of the whole team. Ben Winston uh, was a lead, our leader, but I, I think we pulled it off, and we will have it April third in Vegas. And we're already we were on two zooms this morning, and uh, you know we're working away. And it's going to be not the way it was last year. It's going to be audience and I don't know I, I mean it's it's a live event in MGM uh, Grand Arena uh so yeah it will be people together that we we sort of had to create that last year but this year we will we will do it and so okay so tell us let we, we haven't talked about you as an author at all and I know I've got to let you go soon I know that your New York Times bestseller was a book about friends I've had a few bestsellers, but there, yeah, I think that I should, was the first, wasn't that the first one? I think so. Yes. Well, uh, I thought, I, I thought your first book actually was a, a Woody Allen quiz. Well, I did a, I did a book in an hour and a half when, <laughs> when you could write about Woody Allen. I was right out of college and at working at Esquire and they offered the book money, which was nothing to a, a real writer. And he went, I will never do the book for that money, but there's a guy who just came out of college. He'll do it. <laughs> and so I wrote a book about, trivia questions about Woody Allen. Hopefully funny, when you could do that. I wouldn't write it today. Uh, and then, yeah, I did a, a few more books. Uh, and then the Friends cast, I did a cover story in Rolling Stone. And then when they had to do, when they, Warner Brothers agreed to do a book, the cast asked that I do it. And then when they ended the show, they asked that I come back and do it, which was a very lovely thing for them to do because uh, the original, yeah, the money wasn't great for the first one. When they came back, I, my wife, who was smart, unlike me and a business person, <laughs> and my agent said, you need to get a royalty on, you know, and so my wife, I think, had the idea of make your royalty tied to the cast. So I was an equal participant. Now, the beautiful thing about that is TV show cast, especially Friends cast, they did financial uh, fiscal accounting. So, you know, in, in books, you often don't get the money, like a lot of other things in Hollywood, but the Friends cast and their legal teams found the money. And because I was a tied participant to them, wow. during a writer's strike, I got a the nicest, biggest check of my career was thanks to the cast of Friends and uh, my wife. Wow, how brilliant is that? that um, you're getting, I, I can see when your eyes go down and you're reading like you're getting something important that you're ignoring while you're talking to me. I no, feel no, bad. No, no. <laughs> oh, no, I, I'm, I, I, I'm not rushing. I have uh, a dinner that my wife has to come home before I can have the dinner. Uh, we're going out for, and I, I was invited to play tennis before the dinner, but I can't because the dinner starts too early. So I'm good. You tell me what I just I right. thought I thought we ended at six, but I'm, no, I, I'm no, not going what, anywhere. All right, good. Well, you tell me when you uh, before you have to go. I don't want to I don't want to break in on your time, but uh, but since we've got you, tell us some more stories if you don't mind. So tell me about Prince because you have a great Prince story. Uh, well, the first time I I met Prince, uh, uh, I was in Paris when he was doing the Love Sexy tour. I huge fan, loved him, <laughs> and. Uh, but I was brought over to meet him after a show, after a midnight, first there was a concert, then there was the club concert, 
Then there was a private party at three in the morning on an island. And I was wow. brought over with Kurt Loder, who was covering this for, for uh, MTV. Mm-hmm. Kurt stepped on Prince's foot, which when that was not a good way to start the two of us talking to Prince. But <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. The, actually, he invited us to the second show that during that party. So that was the, I had the wrong order. But in any case, many years later, <coughs> Ken Ehrlich brings me into the Grammys and he asked me to come with him to meet with Prince. And we go over to, he goes to go through what he wants to do with Beyonce, which ended up being one of the greatest Grammy moments of all time was the two of them opening the Grammys together. But what Prince didn't tell us was uh, that he goes, rather than telling you about it, let me show you. And he had like two beautiful women assistants put two chairs in front of the band in this rehearsal hall. And he just did a private show for the two of us for like 45 minutes. The funny thing that's very Prince-like was at the end he went, cause he knew me as a journalist a little bit. And then he thanked me on one of his albums, you know, for whatever wow. suggestion. But so he knew me a little, but he knew me as a journalist at, mm-hmm. up till then. And he went uh, afterwards, he goes, you have to sign a non-disclosure. You can't talk about this. And I went, you have to ask me to sign a non-disclosure before you do it, because now I'm not signing anything, which only came in handy when he passed. Uh, I do remember uh, my wife. You said no to Prince? Wow. I, said no. I did say no to Prince. He, wow. uh, so that that's why, because I, you know, I wasn't going to sign a non-disclosure. And I never talked about it until when he passed. Uh, my wife had always said, because I would get calls from CNN or people to go on and talk about people. She went, don't go on the day someone dies. It's just, it seems horrible. But my wife also loves Anderson Cooper. So the day Prince died, she literally <laughs> said, I remember I was in an office in West Hollywood and she goes, don't do any TV. Don't do any TV today. And then I got a, 10 minutes later, I got a call from Anderson Cooper's producer saying, Anderson Cooper wants you to go on to talk about Prince. I called my wife and she goes, don't keep Anderson waiting. Go. <laughs> so I did it. I did Anderson Cooper the next two days. Uh, um, talk and I told the stories about working with him. I mean, he was amazing. And you know, when he even when he passed, one of the last shows done before the pandemic with a big audience was our Grammy tribute to Prince, uh, and that was a very special show. And it was like I worked with Jimmy Jam, who was obviously worked with him in the time and. Uh, uh, Sheila E was a musical director, and uh, and it was a great way to sort of pay tribute to a guy who was tough, but the great I think the greatest live performer of all time. Speaking of great live performances, so I heard you talking today about um, Bruce. You know that I, you and Phil, I guess Phil is the most maniac Bruce fan I've ever. So. I heard you say that seeing Bruce on Broadway was maybe the greatest live. It, t- tell us what that experience was for I you. I thought, I mean, at the moment, what I said, I went with my brother-in-law, uh, Craig Turk, my, Fran's brother, is mm-hmm. he created, co-created with Dick Wolf, FBI. So this was the year that he had created a big show for CBS, and we and I was helping at the upfront. And he, I, I am not, my wife and I are both like, not, I get invited to enough things that I don't tend to plan a lot of other things, but I wanted to see Springsteen, but it was like impossible to get tickets. He, my brother-in-law, Craig said, 
I'm taking us. You get dinner. I got the show. And I, I watched it with him and I thought, this is the best written thing, a piece of popular art. Plus it's Bruce and we're in the second row. I remember I was next, next to Jeff Zucker, who's very wow. much in the news today. Uh, uh, so we had yes he is yes. Um, but it was yeah I thought it was absolutely just perfect it was and like little things like talking about race in America is very tough mm -hmm. and I remember when he talks about Clarence like I had never I, I grew up in New Jersey I missed the Beatles but I hit Bruce 100% in New Jersey right so that was my Beatles, really, was watching Bruce explode in New Jersey. But I grew up in Tenafly, New Jersey, and it was pretty white town. George Benson, when he had a hit song, moved in down the block, but it was not, it was very white town. And the truth is, <clears throat> the, 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 the messaging of Clarence and Bruce on that cover, you know, they're leaning on each other, that was really important to me. I think what's really, I mean, music, I think, is the reason I've never even gotten racism. You know, I was, thank God I was raised by very parents who never taught me anything that stupid. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think I'm, that's just luck of the draw with parents. I never heard a word out of either of them that was racist, but also I think, and then, but I had always assumed, <clears throat> well, that was just, you know, that, I never thought Bruce would have thought about that. But in that show, he talks about the messaging, you know, what, what it said, you know, about what they conveyed. And it was so powerful to me that, he, that there was some thought about that. Uh, there, what he, there's words, I don't want to misquote them. The words he says in the show about he and Clarence, I think it's the most beautiful thing about America and race I've ever heard because wow. there's so much stupid shit being said all the time right now and uh and I will say that that's my career you know working like LL Cool J as my host for so many years or Latifah or Stevie One you know all these like I've been blessed to work with an incredibly diverse group of collaborators always like and not just black and white mm -hmm. but like spending all these years doing CMAs and country like okay so let's talk about that a little bit were you a country fan to begin with was that yes and weirdly again it all goes back to your I mean a lot of it is parenting mm -hmm. my dad somehow became when the nitty-gritty dirt band made a defining like bluegrass rediscovery record called will the circle be unbroken my dad in his, you know, in New Jersey, mm -hmm. uh, became, he called it Jewgrass as a joke, but he became a bluegrass <laughs> fan. And so my first concert was going to Carnegie Hall with my parents when I was like nine to see the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band do bluegrass and country. Steve Martin was the opening act. And an hour later, he was, that, that was like the week before he was on Saturday Night Live. Wow. And became a superstar. And I got to tell him, that story, uh, I did a cover, I did a, a feature interview with Steve and Rolling Stone years later around Bowfinger, I think. And uh, I said, when you went on stage, he went on with the arrow in his head. And his first thing he said was, I just inherited a million dollars. So I don't give a fuck if you laugh. And my dad, my dad turned to me and goes, that young man will never be famous. 
and showed my dad was not always right, obviously. Obviously, a week later, yes. Oh, and my my mom said, "What is that weird perfume in Carnegie Hall?" And it was all the pot of all the bluegrass hippies. Uh, but yeah, to this day, like, so I became a country fan, always been a country fan, and then it was actually at the Grammys one year. Dolly Parton was playing with Brad Paisley, who's one of my close, who is one of my closest friends, and Brad. Uh, I was talking to Dolly and Brad about country music and the director of the Grammys, a great guy named Walter Miller, who you may have heard of, but Walter Miller directed until he was like 82 or whatever, the Grammys, but he also was the executive producer of the CMAs for many, many years. And he heard me talking because he's in the truck listening because we're mic'd. Right. He, he goes, you know, country music. I went, yeah, I was raised on country music. And he goes, I got to bring you down to Nashville. And that's how, so I think, uh, yeah, 20 years I've been going to Nashville, you know, and, uh, and what I, the point, my point is just that I, I feel blessed that beyond making a living and helping my wife, putting our kids through school, that my career has allowed me to constantly be interacting and learning from people who are different than I am. And, you know, that's a really lucky thing to have, I think. And, you know, I mean, I've learned, like, I was in college when rap, first rap sort of began to stir. Mm -hmm. I was at Cornell and I wrote like a paper on the poetry of rap. Uh, and then all these years later to have LL Cool J be a close collaborator and to have learned so much from him because he's one of the most inspiring guys I've ever worked with. Like, uh, you know, he really is like having a great quarterback. Oh, it's time for dinner. Well, no, no, no. Uh, my wife has arrived. So now someone will be booing all the stories. <laughs> so, so, well, I won't keep you too. I, I, I know you have to have dinner. So uh, you talked to, okay. So did you get the grant? Did you get to start doing the, the CMAs because of that conversation? Yes, Walter, was Walter Miller said, <laughs> what he actually said was, uh, you get you love country music. I go absolutely. He goes, I can't, I didn't know you knew that. He goes, I'm going to bring you down to Nashville. I said, don't you have a writer? He goes, yeah, I've had a guy for 35 years, but he's no good. And I went, and Walter was just a funny guy, but I was like, well, that's a lot of job security. Uh, <laughs> um, but it's been an unbelievable experience because you know working with I think the first two or three years were Vince Gill, who's an amazing talent, mm -hmm. uh, Brooks and Dunn for a couple of years. Then 11 amazing years with Carrie Underwood and Brad Paisley, who, you know, that I, I'm very proud of those shows. And then since we've had Dolly Parton with Reba and Carrie and Luke Bryan and all these other people, Darius Rucker uh, and Reba, all sorts of people. But uh, I do think, I, I feel like spending a lot of time in different parts of the country with different people that actually like traveling between genres, which is what I love about the Grammys. The Grammys, it's all genres and it's right. everybody. And you realize there's a community of musicians. There's a community of creative people. And that's a lot, what, what unites people, that passion is a lot stronger than anything else. Like even politics. That's why I kind of hate to see, like there was a time when you would write a political joke or two in these shows. And I think mm -hmm. gradually it's become the point where really it's better to stick with music and laughter about other things because we don't need to be divided anymore like tv broadcasting especially like the networks 
I think they exist on speaking to everybody, uniting people. And politics, unfortunately, is the opposite. Like you go, you know, someone goes to Fox News, someone goes to CNN. But I think, uh, so that's why increasingly, like I'm convinced TV, you know, at least in my world, I like to keep it uh, as much as possible above the the daily shitstorm uh, of politics. Have you written anything at an award show that you then decided, no, I can't give that to somebody because that, like, how, like, oh, does yeah. your mind does your mind ever cross the line? Yes, and no, and I've made mistakes, uh, you know, and I've been around when the most some of the historic mistakes of all time. Like, I I like to think I'm pretty good at my job, but I worked on the James Franco Anne Hathaway Oscar. <laughs> uh, I worked on an Emmy that could best be described as regrettable, you know? Uh, and the only thing I've, I mean, I've learned, I hope a lot, but one thing I've learned is like, it's sort of like in terrorism, if you see something, say something, like the minute you see something going wrong, something that will be heard the wrong way. Uh, and that's, it's tough because in comedy, part of the way you get a laugh is by having a little edge. Right. That's what makes it hard for a Dave Chappelle or someone like that. Like, they travel that line and sometimes they overstep it or get in trouble. But what I, yeah, that's what I found is like when something is taking that turn, mm -hmm. you have to throw an alarm and go, we can't do this. Like, you know, and uh, sometimes you can stop a problem and sometimes- Can, you, can yeah. you give me an example of like when you've had to stop something? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've uh, had to, I've gotten into, slight arguments with people when they want to say an explicit political thing mm -hmm. uh where i say we, you can't do that i said i'm not saying you sh you're not allowed to you're i'm not trying to restrict your freedom of speech i'm saying it'll be bad for you because half the people will praise you and then tomorrow half the people are going to hate you and i've seen that whoopi goldberg you know cut to uh i did a uh, number of benefits for the democrats on a presidential campaign one at which she was one of the comedians mm -hmm. she uh and and she was always nice but she at that event it was produced by harvey weinstein in fact uh, <laughs> but at that event there was one time where she said i'm not showing david my jokes like that i'd been asked to like other people would or they take jokes from me or whatever right. but and you generally that's the way it works sometimes you're collaborative sometimes you do it together but in that case she goes i have a bit i want to do and i want to do it and they said i i asked and she did it and she lost a bunch of sponsors it was a i think the joke was a bush it was a double entendre about bush it seems innocent <laughs> but it was like a, a it was obviously a double meaning bush joke and but she lost like a, a bunch of ad campaigns it's like wow uh, so it's again i think like uh yeah i mean yeah so it's just that's that's something i have that's just changed. I mean, the political climate has changed that way. But yeah, I have, uh, I have gotten to, into yeah. There's there there, but I think this, the best way is to talk it through with people and explain, not to say you can't do that. I know Robin Williams a few times. He was the best because you'd write one joke, and he would write eight more that were better, and then forty <laughs> more that were just more. And it would be Robin Williams. But there were a couple like <coughs> corporate event type things mm -hmm. where I once in particular, I remember I had to tell him because I was ordered to you this very funny 
really dirty joke, he couldn't tell it in a corporate atmosphere. He would be, not for me, he would pay the price. The network would cancel his show if he told this joke. But trying to tell Robin Williams not to say something was really rough. In fact, yeah, my first year at the Grammys, uh, John Stewart was hosting the first two. And I, the former head of the Academy, like two back, who was, you know, an interesting, famous character, went up to me and goes, you tell John Stewart not to make a joke about our accountants, because there was some mini scandal or something in the news about our accountants. And I'm like, I don't think John's going to make a joke about the accountants. And, you know, the best way for me to ensure that he will make a joke about, about is tell him not to do tell, it. Don't make a joke about the accountant. <laughs> and so I didn't tell him and he didn't make a joke about the account. So that's how you live to another day. Have you ever had to write for somebody that was, I'm sure this is so, that was like impossible to write, like somebody that just couldn't deliver? I'm sure you've had to do that. I mean, yes. how do you make somebody funny who like just doesn't got the funny? Well, one, of the, one of the lessons I've learned, and I've tried to tell this to people when I get hired by certain people mm -hmm. is, you could have a great joke delivered by someone who no one wants a joke from <laughs> and they won't laugh. Like, and by the same token, Ellen or Robin Williams, people will laugh at a joke, even they'll laugh at the great joke and they'll also laugh at the pretty good joke. Like I've written, like I wrote, but like I wrote a joke for Clinton once and it was a B plus maybe B joke, but he was good with a joke. So yes. he sold it, but there's other politicians I've had to write for, or like, uh, well, you asked Phil about this. We were on a, like, we were, uh, did a few events for John Kerry. <laughs> and like, uh, Phil can tell you the story, but I was not on this call. But like, before I came on, I think John Kerry and Phil were on a phone call. And John Kerry said the following phrase Don't worry, I know comedy. And to which, <laughs> Phil said when he called me later said we're in trouble because Ray Romano never said I know comedy but John Kerry has said I know comedy. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty fantastic. David somebody asked with all this about music do you play an instrument? Do you play? I have no talent which is why uh, I appreciate people. It's funny like when I hosted this music show I'm a fan of music. Like I think uh, I've never gotten over that and I think artists appreciate that, that I come, I, I think I relate to the music fan, not to, uh, I'm not a frustrated, failed musician. I've literally right. never taken a, I played, I took three guitar lessons from a guy who had been thrown out of Sha Na Na in Jersey. <laughs> That's it. That's my musical experience. I, uh, Howie Epstein from the Heartbreakers, who was a beloved friend, once asked me, I can kind of sing half a little, and he asked me to sing on a John Prine record years ago, like a backup vocal. And I said, if I sing on this, I definitely can't review it. So I like to keep some distance, but I have no talent. Uh, uh, friend, my, my wife has just confirmed I have no talent. <laughs> no hidden talents whatsoever. So how did you, okay, so I, you always wanted to be a writer. You always wanted to be a writer for Rolling Stone. How did you become a comedy writer? Because that's a... My husband was a is a comedy writer. How, how did yeah. you? Where did that come from? Were you the class clown? Were you funny as a kid? Were you writing funny? Where did that come from? It's that's, weird. That's, that's... I mean, like I think I was a non class clown 
but I think I was pretty funny. But that was always, I, I think the funny, most people who write, end up writing jokes mm-hmm. are comedians who, right. you know, looking to make money or looking for a job or some security. And so it's really interesting. I did not come in that way. I, I went in through music and journalism. And right. then, but I think Joel Gallen, who uh, hired me for some of the early jobs, mm-hmm. he brought me in to like write for, I think, MTV Movie Awards might have been one of the first things. And I was in a room with Odenkirk, Louis C.K., Chris Rock. Uh, those were some of the, Will Forte. Those but were wait, some- why would you be brought in? Why would you be brought in there? You were being oh. brought in from the music. What, what were, why were you being brought in? Well, the, the truth is I interviewed, I was brought in because Rolling Stone did a TV special. Joel produced it. And I was asked to interview because I'm an interviewer. Right. Steel, Spielberg, Howard Stern, whoever else I interviewed. And he goes, he noticed I made, I think it was Spielberg. I made Spielberg laugh. And he went, you should write jokes for movie awards. So I, wow. I, I have to give him credit for that. And so he started hiring me for a few of those shows. But I was So that write, wasn't your intention. You didn't, you no, weren't like going no, for that. I didn't pursue it. I fell into it. And then Ken Ehrlich, uh, I met him and he got, and he called me one year, 21 years ago, almost exactly four days before the uh, Grammys when Whoopi Goldberg was supposed to host the Grammys backed out. She was sick at the last minute. John Stewart got the job at the last minute. And he called me on a Thursday and said, you want to write the Grammys? And I went, the one that is Sunday. And he went, yes. So, cause it was all like a last minute thing. And, uh, that's a whole other. So we needed like all new jokes because it wasn't whooping well, now. I, it's John. By the way, not. Ju- I think the reason I've gotten a fair amount of work over the years is I'm a generalist. I will write the jokes. I'll write the serious speeches. I write the award copy. A lot of people just write jokes. Right. So I think I. I think it really may come down to. I may not be any good, but I'm no. a good deal. I'm a good because instead of hiring. Like a lot of shows, you'll notice there's eight writers or 10 writers. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the shows I've done, it's me or me and the producer. It's On not... the Grammys, it's just you? Well, it was for many of the years. And then in recent years, like when with James Corden, I uh-huh. worked with his writers. Uh, with Ter- Trevor Noah last year and this year, I'll work with his team. And uh, so again, wow. I will adjust to whatever is needed. Like with Brad Paisley and Carrie Underwood, we spent months coming up with the 12 minute comedy monologue with tribute songs and all that together. Other years, I'll write the straight, you know, in other events, I'll write, like I do a show for years called the Breakthrough Awards. It's about science. And I'll write serious speeches about scientific breakthroughs. So I'm a, I'm very much a generalist. I just I will write for food. That's like you. You are a okay. So it's called a multi instrumentalist in music. So you're the equivalent in whatever. I don't know what that would be, but I get it. I think whore (laughs) is the equivalent. I will write anything you pay me to. Um, and so how did you get the Rolling Stone gig? I know you got. You told us about getting Esquire out of college. How did it lead to Rolling Stone? I was at Esquire for two years. Uh, We started a record column and. Because Esquire being Esquire at that point in history, I literally, we got, it was Lisa Bain, a woman, and I started a record column together. I was just a new young editor, but I got to assign to Updike, John Waters, uh, um, 
I'm trying to remember, like Bernard Malm, <laughs> like all these great writers wrote reviews, Tom Wolfe, like I'm trying to remember who, it was all these interesting voices writing about music. Jan saw that and he had an opening to be for the music editor. So I just got the break of a lifetime and he called wow. me over. In fact, it was weirder than that because I was invited <coughs> by uh, Chris Connolly. Do you know, I don't know if you know. Yeah, Chris. sure. Mm -hmm. But Chris really was instrumental in it. He tried to hire me away from Esquire for Us magazine, which he was being taken from Rolling Stone to start Us. He, Jan brought me over and said, do you want to work at Us? And I couldn't see leaving Esquire for us, it just seemed like not a move. Not a lateral and, move. So then he, but I not I didn't know that Rolling Stone's music editor was changing to be the executive editor. And so he basically, after I turned him down, which he was not used to being turned down, he just called me back. He said, you wanna be music editor? And I went, yep. <laughs> so that, it, I just, it was the fluckiest break imaginable. I skipped 40 steps and I've been wow. falling behind ever since. <laughs> So, okay, David, before I let you go, which I've said six times, what are you listening to these days? And when you, what's the music? What's your go-to music? Well, I, it's, I, I tend to listen to everything all the time, but a lot of it is in this, like a moment like now, it's been very work. I've been listening to Beatles, which has been a great thing from like October to now, plus when I was doing the country awards, going through all the songs from that show. And now I can't tell you what they are, but all the, a bunch of the Grammy nominated artists who will, you'll see in April, I'm listening to that stuff, preparing for that. Uh, but I always listen to, you know, a range of new stuff and old stuff. And I tend to like a lot of new stuff that has echoes of the great old stuff, mm. like, like Silk Sonic, Bruno Mars's group, sounds like, you know, the stylistics and the spinners and like, so I'm, that's my sweet spot is a lot of black and white music of the seventies. I love Bruno. I, you have a great picture with Bruno. Your wife has a great picture with Bruno. Better yeah. picture than your picture, actually. Well, for obvious reasons. He, <laughs> he looks happy to be standing next to her for, you know. Um, is, okay, so you've seen a gazillion shows. We, are there stand? Are there are there shows that stand out as okay? This was one of the greatest concerts I've ever been to in my life. Well, I have to say the the greatest performances, both two in the top five are Prince. One a private show, one that show in Paris. So there's no one I've ever seen who's as good as he is. Just not. Mm. Uh, I've seen some amazing things. I've had the luck of being in the room when people sing to me, you know, I had the, when I did the show on Bravo, you know, I just got to ask personal requests sitting there with Elvis Costello, Tony Bennett, uh, with uh, Alanis, Cheryl Crow, uh, Randy Newman, who's one of my all-time heroes. Uh, so I've been lucky in that way too, but yeah, no one's better than Prince. No one as a performer has ever been, I don't think better than Prince. Uh, my wife, uh, we saw him together, and I think she says that was the best. Yeah, we both think that's the best show we've ever seen. Was it a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Yeah, that's where when... he did the the wall. My guitar gently weeps. Where uh, the funny thing is that was re-released. I better go because uh, it, yeah, well, it, I'm it's the last thing I can say because my dinner appointment is in se at seven, uh, and I better change if I want to stay married. But uh, <laughs> uh, oh, they re-released 
Joel Gallon, in fact, did from that a, a new cut last year or a year and a half ago of that, which showed more of how the guitar went up in the air and all <laughs> that. But the funniest thing was when he released that, there's a guy at the side of the stage who looks quite a bit like me, the unfortunate fellow. And so everyone in the world was like, David, this is you, like on Twitter and stuff. And I'm like, I would remember if I <laughs> I was not there. I was there at some other shows. I wrote a joke for Prince once, which he laughed at and then rejected. He goes, I don't, I'm not doing it. <laughs> but uh, the, the punchline was, what about this purple rain? But uh, I should go and stay married. But it was great seeing you. You too, David. Thank you so much. So fun. Always so fun. Great to see you. All right. Bye, stay safe. Everyone. Stay happy. Bye, everybody. Thank you.